Please turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 43 through 72. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 43 through 72. Here's what Mark writes. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus? Did you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty God and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is the instrument by which you, the living God, speaks to us humans. By your spirit, 
We invite you to do that this morning. We ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been journeying in this season with Christ to the cross in the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in the Passion Week, in the events of the Passion Week. Last week, Pastor Brad led us to meditate on Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this morning, we come to the account of Jesus' arrest and his trial. There are clues in the text that the narrative is beginning to ramp up. The word for seize is used four times in these opening verses, a word that means to take someone by force, even when resistance is encountered. In this crowd with swords and clubs, seize Jesus as if he's a criminal. The, 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 the evidence that the, of the threat and the terror involved in this event is indicated by the fact that everyone deserts Jesus and flees. It's kind of like what happens when a gun is pulled in a mall. Everyone scatters. There's a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, and he flees naked, leaving that garment behind. I think he's the first streaker in biblical history. <laughs> Some have suggested that this may be Mark himself making a cameo appearance, kind of like Stanley inserted himself in all the Marvel movies. It's speculation. We're wondering why he was wearing only a limited linen garment. I mean, was he kind of free to be, or was he in a rush, or why that? It's all speculation. I think Mark includes this dramatic little picture of what it was like when Jesus was arrested. People were in such a rush that they left clothes behind, kind of like an emergency evacuation. You know it's taking place because you see, you know, clothes and coats and personal belongings strewn about on the floor. That, that was what the situation was like. This is the context for Jesus' trial, threat, terror, fear. To report Jesus' trial, Mark uses a literary technique that we have become familiar with in the last few weeks, that, that of the san, a literary sandwich. Uh, notice that Mark sandwiches this account of Jesus' trial in the account of Peter's denial. He starts off uh, talking about Peter in the courtyard, then he goes to Jesus' trial, and then he comes back to Peter denying Jesus in the courtyard. By doing this, I think Mark is making the point that there is not one trial but two trials, and they happen simultaneously. There is Jesus' trial in the upper room of the high priest's home, and there is Peter's trial in the courtyard of the high priest. And Mark, I think, is showing us the contrast between them, courage on the one hand and cowardice on the other, steadfastness on the one hand and failure on the other. I think the theme of these verses is the theme of witness. This Greek word for, for witness appears multiple times in this account. It is the Greek word martyreo, which gives us our word martyr. But what is a martyr? A martyr is someone who bears witness because they're willing to suffer death rather than renounce their beliefs. Is there anything in your life that you are willing to bear witness to? To stand up for, even if it should cost your life. Martin Luther, as you know, famously took his stand after he posted his 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant. Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Is there anything in your life 
that you are willing to say, here I stand. I will not move. Anytime there's a whistleblower in, in corporate America or in our culture, they, they essentially say, here I stand. I, I, have to, I have to say this. I have to stand firm to this truth, even if it costs me my career. Here I stand. Perhaps many of us would risk our life and say, here I stand for my family, perhaps for our country. Is there anything else? Is there anything else in our lives that we would say, here I stand, I cannot move? See, if we have nothing really worth dying for, is there anything really worth living for? Our passage shows us someone worth living for and dying for, and his name is Jesus Christ. Mark, I think, is calling us here to be faithful witnesses to Jesus, even under pressure. The outer part of this, of this Mark and sandwich shows us how we don't bear wit faithful witness to Christ. And then the middle part of the sandwich, why we can faithfully bear witness to Christ. So first, how we don't, and then secondly, why we can. First, how we don't. After Peter deserts Jesus in the garden and flees, he actually inches back towards Jesus. He follows him at a distance, and he comes into the courtyard of the high priest. It would have been this open atrium of houses in that day, this open atrium surrounded by the, the rooms of the house. A few hours earlier, Peter had made this vow that even if he had to die, he would never disown Jesus. And surely his own words were ringing in Peter's ears and motivating him at this point to follow. Follow Jesus even at a distance. It was still risky to follow Jesus even at a distance. It put him in the company of the very guards who arrested Jesus. Imagine Peter here standing in this courtyard trying to keep a low profile. Apparently it was cold enough at night that it required a fire. And that fire illuminated Peter's face enough that a servant girl, a high priest, recognized him called him out. You also were, uh, were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. And broke his promise. Lewis Smedes is a Christian theologian and ethicist, and he wrote an article on the power of promises that I keep coming back to. He says promises are the basis of friendship and, and marriage and family and, and community such that if we break our promises, we lose these things. If we, if we break our promises to our friends, we lose our friendships. If we break our promises in marriage, like what, what holds a marriage together? Isn't it this promise that we've made to someone that we will be with them and for them? through thick and thin and riches and in poverty and sickness and death. If you break, th that's, that's the promise that holds a marriage together. And if you break that promise, you lose your marriage. What are families? Lewis Mead says, aren't families communities of promises made and kept no matter what? Such that if you break your promises, you lose your family. Likewise, community. And perhaps most searchingly, Lewis Mead's promise says that promises form a, a fundamental part of our identity. He says, if you look to your feelings and desires to answer the question, who am I, like our culture does, you'll never get a solid answer. He says, what you feel is not what you are. 
Feelings are flickering flames that fade with every fitful breeze. What you desire is not what you are. Desires rise and fall and change so fast that they can only tell you what you want at any trembling moment. Smead says this, It is the power of promise-making that creates a lasting and genuine identity for us. At this point, he quotes the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt, who says this, Without being bound to the fulfillment of our promises, we would never be able to keep our identities. We would be condemned to wander helplessly and without direction in the darkness of every person's lonely heart, caught in its contradictions and equivocalities. And then he goes on to quote from the play A Man for All Seasons about Sir Thomas More. His daughter Meg uh, at one point begs him to save himself by going back on a promise that he had made. And he says to her, Ah, Meg, when a man takes an oath, he holds his own self in his hands like water. And when he opens his hands, he need not hope to find himself again. Do you hear what Smeeds is saying? He's saying when we break our promises, we're losing a core part of our identity. I mean, think about this for a moment. To be a person of integrity means that you have a non-negotiable core that is consistent no matter what the company you're in, no matter what the circumstance you're in. There is this consistent core to who you are. It stays the same. See, if everything to our bottom is negotiable, transactional, changeable, depending on who we're with or what the circumstance we're in, we have to ask ourselves, who am I? What do you stand for? See, if everything is negotiable down to our core, we end up being like that Leonardo DiCaprio character in Catch Me If You Can. He goes through life impersonating a pilot, then a secret service agent, then a doctor. In other words, he goes through life playing roles, changing faces, calming people, and you don't know who he is. See, if all of life is like this, basically playing roles, changing faces, negotiating, never keeping our word, never following through on our promises, we won't know who we are. And perhaps this is why Peter broke down and wept. See, when he broke his promises to Jesus, he didn't know who he was. He let the water go from his hand. Was he Peter the rock? The responsible, reliable one? Or was he Peter the coward? Was he a true friend of Jesus? Or was he not? He didn't know. And that broke him. I think there are two things that we can learn from Peter. One is how we don't faithfully witness to Jesus. I mean, if Peter the rock could crumble, how much more so us? And how easy it is. It's so often in the ordinary moments with ordinary people. And Peter doesn't deny Christ before the high priest in this kind of grand inquisition moment. It's to a nameless servant girl around a fire. That's when he denies Jesus. Without even ever saying Jesus' name, he denies Jesus. How easy it is to deny Jesus. It's as simple as the moment when Christianity is being denigrated around the lunch table by your colleagues. And you say nothing. How easy it is to deny Jesus. 
or given the opportunity to, not, to identify yourself, identify yourself as a Christian, you, you fail to do that. You, you, you don't do that because it will, in that situation, cause you to lose reputation or maybe even your career. How easy it is to deny Jesus. After all these years, I remember a moment in my first year of college when I was sitting in my room reading my Bible when there's a knock at the door and it's my sweet mate wanting to come in. And before he came in, I grabbed a magazine on my desk and pulled it down over my Bible because I was ashamed of letting him see, my, see me reading my Bible. That's all it took. I didn't even say anything. I just pulled a magazine down. How easy it is to deny Jesus. Our culture is growing more hostile to Christianity. And there is increasing pressure to go into the closet as a Christian or be shamed or canceled. Peter shows us how easy it is not to be a faithful witness to Christ. But my friends, he also shows us something else. He also shows us the real possibility of restoration. Embedded in this, account, in this account is the promise of restoration. And you say, how is that? I don't see that here. What you have to do is ask the question how Mark included this account in his gospel. I mean, think about this. Peter was the only one who knew what happened in that courtyard. The way Mark knew about it was Peter told him. Most scholars think that Peter was a source uh, for Mark's gospel, largely. And let me ask you this. If someone was writing a book about you and you were the source, uh, would you share the worst moments of your life? Would you share the moments to, to be included in the book, the, those moments of abject failure? Most of us wouldn't. Most of us would major on the high points. But Peter tells Mark his worst moment, the moment when he's a coward and a failure and a promise breaker. And you say, how can he do that? I think the reason he could do that is because Peter was restored. Peter had been restored. The, the angel at the resurrection said to Mary, tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going ahead and he'll see you in Galilee. Those are words of life. Tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. I'll see him again. Because Jesus would restore Peter after the resurrection. Making this denial just another evidence of his grace. My friends, there is encouragement that if there is restoration available even for one who failed so dramatically, there is restoration for us. If there's grace and forgiveness for Peter, then there's also grace and forgiveness for us. Mark first shows us how we don't bear witness to Jesus, and then he, secondly, he shows us why we can. Look at the middle of this Markin sandwich. Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. This governing body of the Jews standing between the Roman government on the one hand and the Jewish people on the other. And everything they do here about this, that this trial goes against their own Jewish guidelines. Let me just point out, this trial happens at night. The requirement in the Mishnah was that cases be heard during the daytime and not on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival. This trial takes place in the house of the high priest. The usual spot for cases to be heard was in the temple. Apparently there was no evidence of another trial in the house of the high priest. Everything about this goes against the, the normal protocol. Perhaps this could have been only a pre-trial and not a trial itself. And yet still it's a hard, hardly a fair hearing. Sanhedrin 
are not meeting here to find out the truth. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. In other words, they've already had their minds made up. They have concluded that Jesus is guilty, and they're just looking for evidence to make the case. Back in chapter 3, the Pharisees were plotting even then how they might kill Jesus, and and so this is not a new development. This is not an impartial jury. They are coming to this trial declaring Jesus guilty before he's even had a hearing. And then the witnesses, Mark tells us, all testify falsely. The most serious charge in verse 57 is that Jesus will destroy the temple and in three days build another. And that was a serious charge. I mean, the temple was the center of Jewish life. So this, this threat was kind of like someone uh, you know, making a bomb threat against the White House. I mean, it was a serious charge. But Mark tells us it's false testimony. They're twisting Jesus' words because when he said this, he was referring to his body, not the temple in Jerusalem. Mark says in verse 59, even so their testimony did not agree. The witnesses couldn't get their facts straight. And then the Sanhedrin punished Jesus before the official verdict. The Sanhedrin are a religious body. They're not the Roman government, so they have no right and power to enforce corporal punishment. And yet here they are punishing Jesus before a sentence has even been made. Spitting on him. Blindfolding him. Taking him and beating him. Before a fair trial. Jesus is a victim of falsehood, frame-ups, a rigged jury, an unjust trial. The most serious charge against Jesus that causes the high priest to tear his robes is the charge of blasphemy. The high priest says to Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the most blessed one? And Jesus says, I am. And then quotes from Daniel 7, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. To clear his claim in the Gospel of Mark on Jesus' lips that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. And the high priest clearly understands what Jesus is saying because he tears his robes and says, Blasphemy. Sit at Jesus' right hand is the place of, or sit at God's right hand is a place of highest honor. To come on cloud, the clouds of heaven is to come as the judge over all. Jesus is saying to the Sanhedrin, you are judging me now, but one day I will judge you. The irony of this trial is that the judge of the universe is sitting in the dock on trial with the Sanhedrin as judges. And you say, why would Jesus allow this? Why would the judge of the universe submit himself to an unjust trial and submit himself to being blindfolded and struck and ridiculed and beaten? There's a picture in the Old Testament that predicts this moment. It's in Exodus 17. The Israelites are grumbling against God in the wilderness because there's not enough water to drink and they're in danger of being dehydrated and dying. And they bring a lawsuit against Moses and they're about to stone him to execute him. And Moses cries out to the Lord and says, what should I do? And God says, tell the leaders of Israel to meet me at the rock of Horeb and bring your rod. The rod of Moses represented God's judgment. Moses had used it to strike the Nile and turn it into blood. 
People understood this. They understood the symbol of the rod in the hands of Moses, their judge. And so when they heard they were supposed to meet God at the rock and Moses was going to bring his rod, they probably said, "Uh uh-oh. They were expecting the rod of God's judgment to come down on them at the rock for grumbling in the wilderness. But instead, God says to Moses, I will stand before you at the rock and you will strike the rock with your rod and water will flow from the rock. And you say, what in the world? God was calling for the rod of judgment to come down on himself. God said, I'll stand before the rock. I'll stand in the place of the guilty and I'll take the judgment for them. People were the guilty ones. Guilty of rebellion against God. They deserve the rod of judgment and yet God takes the rod of judgment on himself. He bears the judgment for them so that they can receive water that will bring them life from the rock. And then you turn to the pages of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Israelites in the wilderness drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. In other words, the rock and the rod in Exodus 17 were symbols that pointed forward to the reality of Mark 14. The rod of judgment that we deserve came down on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and out of his side flowed the blood and water that bring us life. Jesus, the judge of all, became the judged for our sakes so that we, the guilty ones, might be forgiven. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, What a Savior. My friends, the reason why Jesus, the judge of all, was willing to become the judged and undergo an unjust trial and be ridiculed and beaten was for our sakes. Out of love for us, as our Savior, he went through this. So that when we understand what Jesus did for us, what he went through for us, what he endured for us, it gives us courage and boldness that is unstoppable. There was a transformation in Peter. Peter the coward, because of what Jesus did, the Peter the coward became Peter the rock. And he would go on to write to the church, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And perhaps when Peter was writing those words, what came to mind was that moment in the courtyard when he denied Jesus. And now he's saying to the church, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. My friends, when we understand what it is that Jesus endured for us, we are willing to endure for him. James is the senior pastor of a large church in Kherson, Ukraine. James is his English nickname to protect his identity in the article that I read this week. 
When Kerrison fell to the Russians, James and his wife and their four children, ages 4 to 17, decided to remain in the city. Even though the Russian shelling shook their fifth-floor apartment like a jingle block and caused their second daughter to scream hysterically, even though they had to sleep for three weeks under the church stairs, James had only been the senior pastor for barely a year, but, and it was a difficult decision to stay, but here's what he says. He says, we saw the despair in people's eyes. They couldn't see tomorrow. Who gives them hope if I run to America or Europe? Now, a year since the war in Ukraine has started, James' church in Kyrgyzstan is not the same as it was before. There used to be 400 members. Now there are only 50. The church used to be filled with laughter and screams of 150 children. Now there are barely 20. A skeleton staff remains, and with the daily Russian shelling, James says those who left would be crazy to come back. And yet when asked if he regrets staying in Kerrison, he says regret? No. No. Never. We are on God's front lines. We are ready to meet God at any moment. Ukrainian pastors do see people, uh, Ukrainians coming to Christ in this moment. Valerie Antinuk who is a Baptist Union president in Ukraine, says in times of trial like this, we see how God multiplies his grace. It's difficult. We cry a lot. But we see God at work. We have all this harvest. This is a season to sow. And he told a gathering of 200 Ukrainian pastors and ministry leaders from across the country, everyone is scared. But we are in ministry. War is a new reality. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. But we all have to die someday. If it's 2023, so be it. These Ukrainian pastors are willing to live and die for Jesus. Where does courage like this come from? Mark says being a faithful witness to Jesus, even under great pressure, comes from understanding what Christ has done under great pressure on our behalf. Mark is writing to Christians in the early 60s who are about to face severe persecution under Nero. So that they would understand when they were justly, unjustly accused, they would know that they had a savior who knew what it was like to be unjustly accused. So they would know when they were ridiculed and persecuted, they had a savior who knew exactly what it was like to be ridiculed and persecuted. When they were condemned to death, they would know that they had a Savior who knew exactly what it was like to be condemned to death. When we understand what Jesus endured for us, we can endure for him as faithful witnesses to him, even under great pressure. If you have nothing to live for, or die for. Come to Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who endured to the very end for us, who was steadfast for us. So by looking at him, and pondering what he has done on our behalf. Lord, help us, encourage us, give us courage to stand for him.
For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.